Book Three, Chapter Nine, of the Lancashire Witches. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Andy Minter. The Lancashire Witches, A Romance of Pendle Forest, by William Harrison Ainsworth. Book Three, Houghton Tower. Chapter Nine: The Banquet. On the King's return to Houghton Tower, orders were given by Sir Richard for the immediate service of the banquet, it being the hospitable baronet's desire that festivities should succeed each other so rapidly as to allow of no tedium. The coup d'oeil of the banquet hall on the monarch's entrance was magnificent, panelled with black lustrous oak and lighted by mullion windows filled with stained glass and emblazoned with the armorial bearings of the family. The vast and lofty hall was hung with banners. And decorated with panoplies and trophies of the chase, three long tables ran down it, each containing a hundred covers. At the lower end were stationed the heralds, the pursuivants, and the band of yeomen of the guard with the royal badge, a demi rose crowned, impaled with a demi thistle, woven in gold on their doublets, and having fringed pole axes over their shoulders. Behind them was a richly carved oak screen, concealing the passages leading to the buttery and the kitchens, in which the clerk of the kitchen, the pantlers, and the yeoman of the cellar and ewery were hurrying to and fro. Above the screen was a gallery occupied by the trumpeters and minstrels, and over all was a noble rafter roof. The tables were profusely spread and glittered with silver dishes of extraordinary size and splendour. As well as with flagons and goblets of the same material and rare design, the guests, all of whom were assembled, were outnumbered by the prodigious array of serving men, pages, and yeoman waiters in the yellow and red liveries of the steward. Flourishes of trumpets announced the coming of the monarch, who was preceded by Sir Richard Houghton, bearing a white wand and ushered with much ceremony to his place. At the upper end of the hall was a raised floor, and on either side of it an oriel window glowing with painted glass. On this dais the king's table was placed underneath a canopy of state embroidered with the royal arms, and bearing James's kindly motto, "Beati pacifici." Seats were reserved at it for the Duke of Buckingham and Richmond, the Earls of Pembroke and Nottingham, the Lords Howard of Effingham and Grey of Groby, Sir Gilbert Houghton, and the Bishop of Chester. These constituted the favoured guests. Grace having been said by the bishop, the whole company took their seats, and the general stillness hitherto prevailing throughout the vast hall was broken instantaneously by the clatter of trenchers. A famous feast it was, and worthy of commemoration. Masters Morris and Miller, the two cooks who contrived it, as well as the labourers for the ranges, for the pastries, for the boiled meats, for the pullets, performed their respective parts to admiration. The result was all that could be desired. The fare was solid and substantial, consisting of dishes which could be cut and come to again. Among the roast meats were chines of beef, haunches of venison, jiggers of mutton, fatted geese, capons, turkeys, and sucking pigs. Amongst the boiled, pullets, lamb, and veal, but baked meats chiefly abounded, and amongst them were to be found red deer pasty, hare pie, gammon of bacon pie, and baked wild boar. With the salads, which were nothing more than what would nowadays be termed vegetables, were mixed all kinds of soused fish, arranged according to the sower's directions. 
the salads spread about the table, the fricassees mixed with them, the boiled meats among the fricassees, roast meats among the boiled, baked meats among the roast, and carbonados amongst the baked. This was the first course merely. In the second were all kinds of game and wildfowl, roast herons, three in a dish, bitterns, cranes, bustards, curlews, dotterels, and peewits. Besides these there were lumber-pies, marrow-pies, quince-pies, artichoke-pies, florentines, and innumerable other good things. Some dishes were specifically reserved for the king's table, as a baked swan, a roast peacock, and the jowl of a sturgeon, soused. These, and a piece of roast beef, formed the principal dishes. The attendants at the royal table comprised such gentlemen as wore Sir Richard Houghton's liveries, and among these, of course, were Nicholas Asherton and Sherborne. On seeing the former, the king immediately inquired about his deliverer, and on hearing he was at the lower tables, desired he might be sent for, and as Richard soon afterwards appeared, having on his return from the chase changed his sombre apparel for gayer attire, James smiled graciously upon him and more than once, as a mark of special favour, took the wine-cup from his hands. The king did ample justice to the good things before him, and especially to the beef, which he found so excellent that the carver had to help him for the second time. Sir Richard Houghton ventured to express his gratification that His Majesty found the meat good. "'Indeed, it is generally admitted,' he said, "'that our Lancashire beef is well-fed and well-flavoured.' "'Well-flavoured!' exclaimed James, as he swallowed the last juicy morsel. "'It is delicious! Finer beef nay man ever put teeth into, and I only wish all my loving subjects had as good a dinner as I had this day eaten.' "'What joint do you call it, Sir Richard?' he asked, with eyes evidently twinkling with a premeditated jest. Uh, "'This dish,' replied the host, somewhat surprised, "'this, sir, is a loin of beef.' "'A loin!' exclaimed James, taking the carving-knife from the sower who stood by. "'By my faith, that is not title honourable enough for joints so worthy. It wants a dignity, and it shall have it. Henceforth,' he added, touching the meat with the flat of the long blade, as if placing the sword on the back of a knight expectant, "'henceforth it shall be sirloin, and see ye call it so. Give me a cup of wine, Master Richard Asherton.' All the nobles at the table laughed loudly at the monarch's jest, and as it was soon passed down to those at the lower table, the hall resounded with laughter, in which page and attendant of every degree joined, to the great satisfaction of the good-natured originator of the merriment. Note. There is a laughable tradition, said Nichols, still generally current in Lancashire, that our knight-making monarch knighted at a banquet in Houghton Tower a loin of beef, the part ever since called the sirloin, and it is added by the same authority, if the king did not give the sirloin its name, he might notwithstanding have indulged in a pun on the already coined word, the etymology of which was, at then as now, as little regarded as the thing signified is well approved. Nichols' Progress of James I, Volume 3 "'My dear dad and gossip appears in unwanted good spirits to-day,' observed the Duke of Buckingham. "'Ah, we good reason, Steenie,' replied the King, "'for we dinner mind when we had better sport, although always excepting the boar-hunt, when we should have been ripped up by the cursed creature's tusks. But for this braw laddie,' he added, pointing to Richard, 
"'You run see what can be done for him, Steenie. "'We mun hear him at court.' "'Your Majesty's wishes have only to be expressed to be fulfilled,' replied Buckingham, somewhat dryly. "'Were I the lad, I wouldn't have placed our mickle dependence on the Duke's promises,' remarked Archie Armstrong in a low tone to Nicholas. "'Has your Majesty made any further inquiries about the girl suspected of witchcraft?' inquired Buckingham, renewing the conversation. "'Ah, wished, Steenie, wished!' cried James. "'Didn't you see her yourself this morning?' he added, in a low tone. "'Ah, I recollect you were not the chase. "'A wheel I had conferred with her, and I am so perplexed in the matter. "'She's a well-favoured lassie as any in the realm, "'and answers decorously and doostly. "'So to say her looks and manners are mightily in her favour. "'Then you mean to dismiss the matter without further investigation?' observed Buckingham. "'I always thought your Majesty delighted to exercise your sagacity "'in detecting the illusions practised by Satan and his worshippers.' "'Ah, say we do,' replied James. "'But bend your bonny head this way till we whisper in your ear. "'We hae a device for finding it all out, which canna fail. "'And when ye ken it, ye'll applaud your dear dad's wisdom "'and perfect mastery of the whole science of kingcraft.' "'I wish your Majesty would make me acquainted with this notable scheme,' replied Buckingham, with ill-conceived contempt. "'I might make it more certain of success.' "'No, no, we shan't let the cat out of the bag just yet,' returned the King. "'We mean it as a surprise to you.' "'Then whatever be the result, it is certain to answer the effect intended,' observed the Duke. "'Keep with you, you're ever sceptical, Steenie, ever misdoubting your ain dear dad and gossip,' rejoined James. "'But you shall find we henna earned the title of the British Solomon for nothing.' Soon after this the King arose, and was ushered to his apartments by Sir Richard Houghton, with the same ceremony as had been observed on his entrance. He was followed by all the nobles, and Nicholas and the others, being released from their duties, repaired to the lower end of the hall to dine. The revel was now sufficiently boisterous, for, as the dames had departed at the same time as the monarch, all restraint was cast aside, the wine-cup flowed freely, and the rafters rang with laughter. Under ordinary circumstances, Richard would have shrunk from such a scene, but he now had a part to play, and therefore essayed to laugh at each jest, and to appear as reckless as his neighbours. He was glad, however, when the signal for general dispersion was given, for though Sir Richard Houghton was unwilling to stint his guests, he was fearful if they sat too long over their wine, some disturbances might ensue, and indeed, when the revellers came forth and dispersed within the base court, their flushed cheeks, loud voices, and unsteady gait showed that their potations had already been deep enough. Meanwhile, quite as much mirth was taking place out of doors as had occurred within the banqueting hall. As soon as the king sat down to dinner, According to promise, the gates were thrown open, and the crowd outside admitted. The huge roast was then taken down, carved, and distributed among them, the only difficulty experienced being in regard to trenchers, and various and extraordinary were the contrivances resorted to to supply the deficiency. This circumstance, however, served to heighten the fun, and as several casks of stout ale were broached at the same time, universal hilarity prevailed. Still, in the midst of so vast a concourse, 
many component parts of which had now begun to experience the effects of the potent liquor, some little manifestation of disorder might naturally be expected. But all such was speedily quelled by the omen of the guard, and other officials appointed for the purpose, and amidst the uproar and confusion harmony generally prevailed. While elbowing his way through the crowd, Nicholas felt his sleeve plucked, and turning perceived Nance Redfern, who signed him to follow her, and there was something in her manner that left him no alternative but compliance. Nance passed on rapidly, and entered the doorway of a building where it might be supposed they would be free from interruption. "'What do you want with me, Nance?' asked the squire, somewhat impatiently. "'I must beg to observe that I cannot be troubled farther on your account, and am greatly afraid aspersions may be thrown on my character if I am seen talking with you.' "'A few words with me will I injure your character, squire,' rejoined Nance. "'and it's on your account and not on my own that I brought you here. "'I have important information to give you. "'What will you say when I tell you that Jem Device, Elizabeth Device, "'and her daughter Yenit are here? "'I'm breathing mischief again you, Richard Asherton, and Alison.' "'The devil!' ejaculated Nicholas. "'And you'll find it the devil, I can promise you, "'unless their plans be frustrated.' said Nance. Oh, "'That can be easily be done,' replied Nicholas. "'I'll cause them to be arrested at once.' "'Nay, nay, that canna be,' rejoined Nance. "'You mun bide your time.' "'What, and allow such miscreants to go at large and work any malice they please against me and my friends?' replied Nicholas. "'Show me where they are, Nance, or I must take you a prisoner.' "'Nay, you winna do that, squire.' she replied in a tone of good-humoured defiance. "'You winna do it for two good reasons. First, cause you'd be harming a friend who wants to serve you, and win do so if you let her. And second, cause if you were to raise a finger agin me, I'd deprive you of speech and notion. When the right moment comes, you shall strike. But it's ne'er come yet. The fruit is ne'er ripe enough to gather.' "'I'm as anxious as you can be that the whole of the demdike brood should be swept away, "'and it shan't be if you'll leave it to me.' "'Well, I commit the matter entirely to you,' said Nicholas. "'Apparently it cannot be in better hands. "'But are you aware that Christopher Demdike's a prisoner here in Upton Tower? "'He was taken this morning in the park.' "'I know it,' replied Nance. "'and I know also why he went there, "'and it were my intention to have revealed his black design to you. "'However, it's been ordered differently. "'But in respect to others, wait till I give you the signal. "'They're disguised. "'But even if you see them and recognise them, "'don't let it appear till I give you the word, or you'll spoil all.' Yeah, "'Your injunction shall be obeyed implicitly, Nance,' rejoined Nicholas. "'I now have perfect reliance upon you. "'But when shall I see you again?' "'That depends on the circumstances,' she replied. "'Tonight, maybe. Maybe tomorrow night. "'My plans must be guided by those of others. "'But when next you seek me, you will have to act.' "'And without waiting an answer, she rushed out of the doorway, "'and mingling with the crowd was instantly lost to view.' while Nicholas, full of the intelligence he had received, betook himself slowly to his lodgings. Scarcely were they gone, when a door which had been standing ajar near them was opened wide, 
and disclosed the keen visage of Master Potts. "'Here's a pretty plot hatching. Here's a nice discovery I've made,' soliloquised the attorney. "'The whole Demdike family, with the exception of the old witch herself, whom I saw burnt on Pendle Hill, are at Houghton Tower. This shall be made known to the King. I'll have Nicholas Asherton rested at once, and the woman with him, whom I recognise as Nance Redfern. It will be a wonderful stroke, and will raise me highly in His Majesty's estimations.' "'Stay! Will not this interfere with my other plans with Janet? "'Let me reflect. I must go cautiously to work. "'Besides, if I cause Nicholas to be arrested, Nance will escape, "'and then I shall have no clue as to the others. "'No, no, I must watch Nicholas closely, "'and take upon myself all the credit of the discovery. "'Perhaps through Janet I may be able to detect their disguises. "'At all events I will keep a sharp lookout.' "'Affairs are now drawing to a close, and I have only, like a wary and experienced fowler, to lay my nets cleverly to catch the whole covey.' And with these ruminations he likewise went forth into the base court. The rest of the day was one round of festivity and enjoyment, in which all classes participated. There were trials of skill and strength, running, wrestling, and cudgelling matches, with an infinite variety of country games and shows. Towards five o'clock a rush-cart, decked with flowers and ribbons, and bestridden by men bearing garlands, was drawn up in front of the central building of the tower, in an open window of which sat James, a well-pleased spectator of the different pastimes going forward, and several lively dances were executed by a troop of male and female Morris dancers, accompanied by a tabor and pipe. But though this show was sufficiently attractive, it lacked the spirit of that performed at Whaley, while the character of Maid Marian, which then found so charming a representative in Alison, was now personated by a man. And if Nicholas Asherton, who was among the bystanders, was not deceived, that man was Jem Device. Enraged by this discovery, the squire was about to seize the ruffian, but calling to mind Nancy's counsel, he refrained and Jem, if indeed it were he, retired with a large S bestowed by the royal hand as a reward for his uncouth gambols. The rush-cart and Morris dancers having disappeared, another drollery was exhibited, called The Fool and His Five Sons, the names of the hopeful offspring of the sapient sire being Pickle Herring, Blue Hose, Pepper Hose, Ginger Hose, and Jack Allspice. The humour of this piece, though not particularly refined, seemed to be appreciated by the audience generally, as well as by the monarch, who laughed heartily at its coarse buffoonery. Next followed the plough and sword dance, the principal actors being a number of grotesque figures armed with swords, some of whom were yoked to a plough on which sat a piper playing lustily while dragged along. The plough was guided by a man clothed in a bearskin with a fur cap on his head and a long tail like that of a lion dangling behind him. In this hirsute personage, who was intended to represent the wood-demon Hobhurst, Nicholas again detected Jem Device, and again was strongly tempted to disobey Nancy's instructions and denounce him, the rather that he recognised in an attendant female, in a fantastic dress, the ruffian's mother, Elizabeth, but he once more desisted. As soon as the mummers arrived in front of the king, the dance began, with their swords held upright, the party took hands and wheeled rapidly round the plough, 
keeping time to a merry measure played by the piper, who still maintained his seat. Suddenly the ring was enlarged to double its former size, each man extending his sword to his neighbour, who took hold of the point, after which a hexagonal figure was formed, all the blades being brought together. The swords were then quickly withdrawn, flashing like sunbeams, and a four-square figure was presented, the dancers vaulting actively over each other's heads. Other variations succeeded, not necessary to be specified, and the sport concluded by a general clashing of swords, intended to represent a melee. Meanwhile, Nicholas had been joined by Richard Asherton, and the latter was not long in detecting the two devices through their disguises. On making this discovery he mentioned it to the squire, and was surprised to find him already aware of the circumstance, and not less astonished when he was advised to let them alone, the squire adding that he was unable at that time to give his reasons for such counsel, but being good and conclusive, Richard would be satisfied of their propriety hereafter. The young man, however, thought otherwise, and notwithstanding his relative's attempt to dissuade him, announced his intention of causing the parties to be arrested at once, and with this design he went in search of an officer of the guard, that the capture might be effected without disturbance. But the throng was so close round the dance that he could not pierce it, and being compelled to return and take another course, he got nearer to the mazy ring, and was unceremoniously pushed aside by the mummers. At this moment both his arms were forcibly grasped, and a deep voice on the right whispered in his ear, "'Meddle not with us, and we will not meddle with you.' While similar counsel was given him in other equally menacing tones, though in a different key on his left. Richard would have shaken off his assailants and seized them in his turn, but power to do so was wanting to him. For the moment he was deprived of speech and motion." but whilst thus situated he felt that the sapphire ring given him by the king was snatched from his finger by the first speaker, whom he knew to be Jem Device, while a fearful spell was muttered over him by Elizabeth. As this occurred at the time when the rattling of the swords engaged the whole attention of the spectators, no one noticed what was going forward except Nicholas, and before he could get up to the young man the two miscreants were gone, nor could any one tell what had become of them. "'How the wretches done your mischief?' asked the squire, in a low tone of Richard. "'They have stolen the king's ring, which I meant to use on Alison's behalf,' replied the young man, who by this time had recovered his speech. Yeah, "'That's unlucky indeed,' said Nicholas. "'But we can defeat any ill design they may attend by acquainting Sir John Finnett with the circumstance.' "'Take and pay,' said a voice in his ear. "'The time is not yet come.' The squire did not look round, for he well knew that the caution proceeded from Nance Redfern, and accordingly he observed to Richard, "'Tarry a while, and you'll be amply avenged.' And with this assurance the young man was fain to be content. Just then a trumpet was sounded, and a herald stationed on the summit of the broad flight of steps leading to the great hall proclaimed in a loud voice that a tilting-match was about to take place, between Archie Armstrong, jester to his most gracious majesty, and Davy Droman, who filled the same honourable office to his grace the Duke of Buckingham, and that a pair of gilt-heeled chopins would be the reward of the successful combatant. This announcement was received with cheers, and preparations were instantly made for the mock tourney. A large circle being formed by the yeoman of the guard, with an alley leading to it on either side, 
the two combatants, mounted on gaudy caparisoned hobby-horses, rode into the ring. Both were armed to the teeth, each having a dish-cover braced around him in lieu of a breastplate, a newly scoured brass porringer on his head, a large pewter platter instead of a buckler, and a spit with a bung on the point to prevent mischief in place of a lance. The Duke's jester was an obese little fellow, and his appearance in this warlike gear was so eminently ridiculous that it provoked roars of laughter, while Archie was scarcely less ridiculous. After curvetting round the arena in imitation of knights of chivalry, and performing their careers, their prankers, their false trots, their smooth ambles and canterbury paces, the two champions took up a position opposite each other, with difficulty, as it seemed, reining in their pawing charges, and awaited the signal of attack to be given by Sir John Finnett, the judge of the tournament. This was not long delayed, and the laissez-aller being pronounced, the preux chevaliers started forward with so much fury and so little discretion, that meeting half-way with a tremendous shock, and butting against each other like two rams, both were thrown violently backwards, exhibiting amid the shouts of all the spectators their heels, no longer hidden by the trappings of their steeds, kicking in the air. Encumbered as they were, some little time elapsed before they could regain their feet, and their lances having been removed in the meantime, by order of Sir John Finnett, as being weapons of too dangerous a description for such truculent combatants, they attacked each other with their broad leathern daggers, dealing sounding blows upon home, halberdion, and shield, but doing little personal mischief. The strife raged furiously for some time, and as the champions appeared pretty well matched, it was not easy to say how it would terminate, when chance seemed to decide in favour of Davy Droman, for in dealing a heavier blow than usual, Archie's dagger snapped in twain, leaving him at the mercy of his opponent. On this the doughty Davy, crowing lustily like a chanticleer, called upon him to yield. But Archie was so wroth at his misadventure, that instead of complying he sprang forward, and with the hilt of his broken weapon dealt his elated opponent a severe blow on the side of the head, not only knocking off the porringer, but stretching him on the ground beside it. The punishment he had received was enough for poor Davy. He made no attempt to rise, and Archie, crowing in his turn, trampling on the body of his prostrate foe, and then capering joyously around it, was declared the victor, and received the gilt chopins from the judge, amidst the laughter and acclamations of the beholders. With this the public sports concluded, and as evening was drawing on apace, such of the guests as were not invited to pass the night within the tower took their departure, while shortly afterwards supper being served in the banqueting-hall, on a scale of profusion and magnificence quite equal to the earlier repast, the king and the whole of his train sat down to it. End of chapter 9